Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. So hi everyone, I'm so excited to have Lena Anderson here today to share her story. So welcome to the Arthritis Life Podcast. Thank you very much, Cheryl. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. So just to get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, like your diagnosis, where you live, how long you've been living with this? Um, I, I am firmly middle-aged. I live in Toronto, Canada, originally from Denmark. Um, and I was diagnosed with what was then called juvenile <laughs> rheumatoid arthritis, which has now uh, been changed to juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Technically, I am an adult with juvenile arthritis, but it is similar enough to RA that I basically just introduced myself as somebody having rheumatoid arthritis, which which would have been much easier if I just did that. But, you know, nothing is ever simple. <laughs> Definitely, especially when it comes to autoimmune disease. Nothing, nothing is ever simple. So you've been living with this for a while. 
and you have, uh, I, we're going to later on get into like your diagnosis journey and your overall journey with living with juvenile RA slash, you know, idiopathic arthritis, whatever, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Some <laughs> juvenile or adults, you know, my body likes to attack my joints, whatever you want to call that it. That one. Yes. Yeah. Let's just, let's just call it RA. It's easier. Yes, exactly. Um, but you know, one of the things that I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about is general tips and tricks for surviving the holiday season while managing a chronic illness. And I know you even have written a book about this. So I would love to I know did. some of your tips. I did. The book is called Chronic Christmas, Surviving the Holidays with a Chronic Illness. And it um it actually started as a series of blog posts for people with chronic illness and with tips on how to reduce stress and, and actually enjoy yourself during the season, um, which can be a challenge, I think, for any any grown up out there, because it's such an exuberant time of year in terms of like, your squishing so much stuff into a month. Um, and there's so much pressure to make it perfect and magical and all of this. So so that's how the, it started out with a series of blog posts. And then I kind of went, you know, I should make this into a book. And in order to, um, to kind of make it about more than just a blog post, I decided to treat this as an advent calendar where each day has a tip for the person with chronic illness on how to live well during the seasons and little things you can do to just eliminate stress and 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 crank up the enjoyment but at the same time um there's also tips for their family and friends with real practical tips on what you can do to help and i did that because i find a lot of like if you have a chronic illness or a disability people who care about you will say just let me know if there's anything i can do to help and then you go okay and then you don't know what to ask for. And somehow, I think I think in our world, we are weirdly taught that asking for help is a sign of weakness. Yeah. And the emotional toll of that gets even bigger when you actually need the help, when you have RA, for instance. Um, and then you don't know what to ask for. And the other people don't know what to offer because they don't know what you need. So it just becomes this thing that never happens. So I thought if I can give people some real practical tip, this is something that would be helpful. Um, then maybe it could actually work. And it seems to be working. People people like the book. So it's been out for a couple of years and and I keep hearing people saying this got me through December, which is wonderful. Right. And so I think the biggest thing for me is in terms of getting through the holiday season is that you start with an acknowledgement that no matter how hard you try, it won't be perfect. Like forget yeah. about attaining magazine or Instagram perfection. It just won't happen. And more than that, I actually think it's the imperfect moments that create the family legends. Like we are still talking 30 years after the ha it happened. My family still talks about the tree that wouldn't stand. Yeah. And tipped, tipped over. Like it, and we ended up tying it with ropes to furniture in such a way you couldn't almost couldn't see it. Like that's a family legend. It's not the perfect tree that did exactly what it was supposed to do. So I think as approaching it with a sense of humor and just embracing the imperfect is really important. And I also think um, focusing on what's essential because this 
is about being together. It's about the Danish concept of hygge, which is spelled yeah. H-Y-G-G-E, um, which is esen- essentially about being cozy and togetherness and and just focusing on that, but without the perfection trappings about the big meal or whatever. It's, it's about that being together. And I think as you approach the holidays with a chronic illness and limited energy, um, it can really help to focus in on that essential, uh, whether it's it's you decide you do one tradition instead of, you know, all 47 of them. Um, it's one decoration or you decorate one room instead of the whole house. You bake one kind of cookie instead of the usual 12 and that kind of thing. And then do it in small stretches. If you're having a really hard time, decorate five minutes a day, get your family in on it. So you can even create a family tradition of, you know, let's all do this together. Uh, when that. I was growing up, we... We decorated the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve and we celebrate Christmas Eve. And while my while my mother was busy, there came a certain point where she just handed it over to my sister and I. And so we would decorate the tree. And when we were done, we would call her and to see it. And every single year she said it was the most beautiful tree she'd ever seen. And Aww. And there is a certain point where you can just give it to your kids or give it to someone else in the family and say, and and then even if it looks terrible, tell them it looks beautiful because then they want to do it again. I think at the core, it's about realizing you are not the only one involved in this. That making it, like the thing that makes it magical and creates memories is when you all do it together. That's so true. And I think that can be really hard for a lot of people (laughs) who are mourning maybe a little bit of their own loss of independence due yeah. to their condition that mm-hmm. you kind of end up getting sometimes even more fixated on doing yes. things yourself when really those moments of togetherness, like you said, yeah. those are actually some of the best. Yeah, that's so. what sticks in your kid's mind when they're grown up or have their own kids and want to create, like recreate the magic they remember. It's those moments where you all did it together. And I think the most important things to remember is that the magic you're trying to create has a lot to do with you being part of it. That's what your family will remember. If you end up making it so magical that um, you'll crash out on the couch come Christmas morning, then your kids grow up remembering that that you were so obsessed with the perfection of it that you weren't part of it right and it's like it's about you being there and if that means cutting some corners or being really selective about what you do then do that and then whatever you then do enjoy it right because that's what creates those moments that's wonderful and that presence that being present in the moment and I know that there can be a lot of guilt people feel mm-hmm. around their illness and then just releasing yourself from that can yeah. be so therapeutic to say, yeah, this is, even if I was a hundred percent healthy and had no chronic illnesses, nothing's ever perfect, right? Oh, absolutely not. And like, and, and I think we can all benefit. And it's one of the messages of my book is that even if you don't have a chronic illness, what would you, what would it feel like if you just let go and said, Hey, maybe we buy the cookies this year, you know, yeah. or, we go like I have friends who go out for Christmas dinner, probably not this year, because you know, we have we have some extra challenges this year with the pandemic. But I think it it's that whole sitting back and going what is essential and and letting go of of that guilt, because I'm a big fan of 
well, I have a background in social work, so I analyze, therefore I am. And nice. so I think so I think about guilt. And guilt is a sign you've done something wrong. It is what you feel or should be feeling, like if you steal something or if you hurt someone deliberately. But is the inability to do it all because of a chronic illness, that's not you doing anything wrong. That's just reality. Right. I, I love that. I I was asked to write an article for Everyday Health about um, mom guilt and chronic illness guilt. And yeah, my first reaction when I was asked to write the article was like, well, I don't really, I don't feel guilty, right? Like I, because of the exact reason that you mentioned, but then I decided because it's so common to feel guilty, I could maybe explain why I don't feel, feel guilty for limitations that are out of my control, right? And well, yeah. And I, and I think also maybe naming what it is that's, that's really going on. And I think often what's happening is related to feeling sad or grieving what you have lost. And like, that's absolutely something that you should be dealing with because it's going to stop you. Um, but don't let it stop your Christmas. Enjoy what you can do right? because like essentially none of us can do it all. Like if you look at your healthy friends who are frazzled and exhausted mm -hmm. by Christmas, it's like it, maybe this year is the year like this year has been different in all ways. 2020 is the year when nothing was normal. Mm -hmm. So maybe make this the year that you enjoy Christmas, even if in its different and smaller way that like the way we have to do to keep each other safe. It's already different. So maybe it's a really good way to start cutting out the big things. Absolutely. And just having, you know, realistic expectations. I think that's what a lot of people have learned this year. You know, just it's okay to not do things perfectly all the time. And I wanted to ask you actually speaking about this this year, 2020, um, I am curious, you know, if you have any specific reflections on, um, you know, what, how people can navigate the holiday season during people with chronic illness, specifically during this pandemic. Um, you know, I know it's affected a lot of us. I know you've gotten, you know, ill this fall, unfortunately. So anything you want to share about that? Well, um, thankfully, I did not get COVID, although I had two of the brain probe tests. So that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I got like, I basically crashed. I did too much and I crashed and I got sick and had five, five weeks of a variety of symptoms that basically meant I could do nothing. And I'm kind of coming out of it with, well, I'm trying really hard to stay, you know, when you come out of having a really hard time with your illness and you have zero energy and you're very, very good, um, at being very careful and easing back mm -hmm. in. So that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to stay here. Unfortunately, I usually have too much to do. I need a clone. But uh, I'm trying to be really strict about what's essential every day. And I'm trying to be really in touch with my body. And, and there are times when my body goes, okay, I'm done. And I'm like, but, but, but there's a list and it goes, it tells, tells me rude things about the list and where I can put yeah. it. But so I think that whole finding a dialogue with your body, and I think a lot of us ignore our bodies because there's a sense of betrayal. But one of the things that helped me the most was realizing that my body is actually my best friend. The enemy is the disease and my body is doing its best to help me and yeah. to get through the day. And if we, if me and my body keep talking and keep 
working together, then you end up being able to do do more and enjoy life more instead of constantly battling. So that's, again, I think where it starts. This particular year, I think it's about being ruthless about what you need. Um, I think there is, it's really important to remember that if you have to say no to gathering, because you're high risk. It's not your fault. It's the pandemic's fault. I think if there's any pressure, how to phrase this, my goal that I keep reminding myself when I'm upset about being stuck inside, my goal is to get through the pandemic without getting sick and without dying. Um, and I have a very vivid memory because four years ago, I ended up in the ICU with complications from influenza. And I ended up on a ventilator for two weeks and flatlined when they took the tube out. So I had a trach for another couple of weeks. And wow. it's still very vivid. And I am telling you, you do not want to be there. You do not want to be sick. And you don't want to lose any of the people you love. Like we sacrificed this year. The vaccine is really close. There's every chance that, that a year from now we'll be back to a fairly normal Christmas, or maybe it's a quiet one next year and then a normal one the year after. But it's like, let's take the long view and do what we have to, to make sure that we all, when we all get together again, ought all of us are there, you know, like that's what's important. It's not about, it's not about what we do now. It's about, are we all going to be here? And I, and I think it's a rough, <laughs> it's a very blunt way to look at it, but quite honestly, as someone who very vividly remembers, well, I don't remember anything from being, you know, in a coma, but, um, but 10, 10 day, I think it was about 10 days with a trach and being unable to talk. It was terrifying. Like I got PTSD out of it, which was my, you know, the gift that keeps on giving but um so sorry eh, you know what uh i figured out a way to mostly live with it right but it's just so vivid still those memories and you just don't you don't want to be there so do whatever you have to to keep yourself safe absolutely that that's i mean i can't say it any better than you have and um you know i think there is a degree of medical or health privilege that some people have when they say, oh, it's not that bad, or, you know, only X percent of people will end up on a ventilator. Well, <laughs> you could, you know, some of us are more at risk. And I know you could, we could go on little rants about that for a long time. <laughs> well, and I think it's also really important to, rem to, to realize, like, if there's anybody who's not high risk for listening to this, is that a number one, we, we are, to get really depressing for a moment, we are essentially in the process of losing our parents and grandparents. Like I, I saw uh, some stats the other day that in in Canada or in Ontario, the province where I live, 96% of the people who have died from COVID are over 60. And wow. it, it, I think it's important to remember that it's the COVID high risk doesn't just mean extreme elderly. It's anybody over 50, anybody with any pre-existing condition, whether it's diabetes, high blood pressure, whatever. Um, but I also think it's really important to realize that as someone, if you're under 40, you have a much lower risk of getting a case that's severe enough that you might die or you might need an ICU, but you have a much higher risk of getting long-term symptoms. And as someone who has had chronic illness for my entire life, I can tell you, you don't want to, you, they, we have a wonderful chronic illness community, but you don't want to be part of it unless you have to. Yeah. So I think it's, 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 it's about protecting people who may be at more risk, but it's also protecting yourself so you don't join our community. Because it's like, it sucks having a chronic illness. You find ways to live well with it, but you don't. Like if I didn't have, if I had a choice, 
I wouldn't be living like this. I agree. There's definitely some threads of like toxic positivity when people say mm-hmm. things like, oh, because I've learned things due to my illness, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I'm like, you know, everyone to each their own, but I'm like, uh, I would trade it. Like, I love the phrasing, you know, being ruthless about what you need. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah, well, it. And, and I think it, it comes down to that because um, when you are fighting, you know, the guilt trips from your family is like, why are you not coming? Or why are you not hosting? And it's like, you know, because I love all of you, even though you're annoying me right now. And I want all of us to be to be here through that. And like, let's face it, we've had nine months to figure out different ways of being together. And um yeah, it's ideal in person, but but you also see anytime you see reports of it, it's the gatherings that yeah. that spread. And I saw some some statistics just uh, within the past week about a wedding in Maine mm-hmm. where one person had COVID and how many, it was like 70 people who ended up, when you go into not just the guests, but they're the people they then met afterwards. And I think seven or nine people died and none of them had been at the wedding. So take it seriously. Even even if you think you're low risk, remember that perhaps it's not so much about the, your individual risk, but the risk you're willing to put on the person you love the most. Because sometimes I think that reassesses in your mind. It's like, okay, I feel fairly healthy, but and I think I could get through this okay. But then when you think about the person you love you the most, are you willing to expose them to the risk? And then they usually becomes different. Absolutely. It's interesting. It's given a lot of people a glimpse, a lot of able-bodied people a glimpse into what it's like to have to assess risk all the time in your life. You know, living with a chronic illness, we're constantly having to assess the risk. And now it's just, it's a new skill for some people. Yes. And it's exhausting. I completely understand the caution fatigue and the COVID fatigue because I'm exhausted and I don't want (laughs) to. Yeah. But but on the other hand, the consequences of not are um, significant. Yeah. It's life or death. (laughs) It, it, well, it's, and it's, it's not just life as in being actually alive. It's also, if you do end up with long-term symptoms, that's that's going to affect the way you live. So it's it's literal and metaphorical life. It's quality of life threatening, you know, to have this thing. It would definitely affect your yeah. People who haven't lived with fatigue, um, I've I've heard that the post COVID syndrome is the fatigue is similar to um, you know having like chronic fatigue syndrome or like a severe autoimmune fatigue flare up. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna try to avoid that. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. As someone who lives with like bone crushing fatigue all the time, when you hear about people saying, like I read about somebody the other day who said, I just made it to the washroom on my own for the first time in two weeks. And I'm like, yes, this is what you're looking at. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm interrupting really quickly to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap. It's a comprehensive online education and support program that I created from scratch to help people learn how to live a full life despite rheumatoid arthritis. In the course, you get to learn how to manage everything from physical symptoms like pain and fatigue to social and emotional aspects of living with rheumatoid arthritis. I even cover the logistics of things like how to track symptoms and how to advocate for yourself in medical appointments. To learn more, go to myarthritislife.net. Actually, and I I did want to ask you, because I know there's a lot of people with chronic illnesses who have a dream of writing their own book someday. And that just made me think, um, you know, the idea of having to 
you know, balance your own condition and fatigue that you're dealing with, but also achieving such a cool, in my opinion, life goal of writing a book. That's one of my bucket list items too. How, what are, how did you write a book? Like, how did you balance that? What was that like? Not like, how did you do it? I can't believe you did it, but more like, tell us what it was like, basically. Um, my first book is uh, Your Life with Rheumatoid Arthritis, that, yeah. which is um, Your Life with Rheumatoid Arthritis, Tools for Managing Treatment, Side Effects, and Pain. I just said it was a long title. How, what, what did I call that again? Oh, um, no, it's great. I'm the queen of long titles. I yeah. totally get it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's basically... I, well, I wanted to write a book my entire life. Like this, this was my dream from the moment I figured out that books aren't just magic, that people make the magic. I knew I wanted to write a book. And I actually, I got through a um, really severe flare in 2005, found a medication that worked for the first time in my life and thought, so what do you do when you're given a second chance? And you honor it by becoming like basically living full throttle and not putting anything on hold, except, you know, you still have to with a chronic illness. But um, I started by writing an hour a day. And writing was either actual writing, thinking about writing, reading about writing, talking about writing, um, because there are days where I just can't actually do the writing. Um, and it was frustrating because I get, it was wonderful and it was frustrating. Um, and I came up against, you know, I tend to overestimate what I can do and underestimate how long things take. Same, and, same. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Um, so there's a lot of frustrations, but I just kept at it like my hour a day. And sometimes it was more in, in, and the key to something like writing is it's the exact same thing as physical exercise. The more you do it, the more you're able to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I just kept working on it and it took three years of a draft and a rewrite and another draft and et cetera. Um, and, and it reminded me very much of a story by Anne Anne Lamott, who is a great, great author, and she writes about writing a lot. And in her book, Bird by Bird, which is oddly about writing, um, yeah. she tells a story of when she was a child, her brother was late with a school reporter on birds and freaking out the night before and panicking and said, how will I ever do this? And her dad told him, you do it bird by bird. And I think that's where it comes down to and, and realize you're going to be frustrated many times. Like I'm in the process of uh, writing a book proposal right now and lost five months, five weeks felt like five months, lost five, five weeks due to being sick. Yeah. And it's infuriating and disheartening and frustrating. But I think what you have to realize that whether you have a chronic illness, I think life is never linear. There are always sidetracks and then you go off in the weeds and then you something else happens or life takes over or you get sick or your kid needs you or work goes crazy or whatever, right? And I think just realizing that the key is, yeah, you may get sidetracked, just get back on the main track. Just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And one of the things that helped me at the time was that I'd read a story that it took Laura Hillenbrand 10 years to write the book Secretariat, and she did most of it in bed. I later found out that 
that was an exaggeration. It took her two years, but that really helped that it's like, yes, you can do things. You can chase your dreams with chronic illness. It might take longer and it might look very different than other, than, you know, other people who can write, you know, 10,000 words a day. That just doesn't happen. Initially, I wrote 400 words a day. And if they're good words, then great. Sometimes 10 of them were good, right? But all writers do that. Like, and, and, and there's also a story about um, James Joyce, who wrote Ulysses, which I have never written, read, but mm-hmm. um, he actually, he would agonize. <laughs> like his writing process was just agony. And he would have a good day if he wrote about 10 good words. So, you wow. know, you keep that in mind and you just do it. You just keep going back to it. I, I love that. That's such, such good advice for anyone with chronic illness who wants to write a book or anyone who doesn't have chronic illness who wants to write a book. It's just good advice. Well, and I think it goes for anything. If your dream isn't to write a book or whether it's to paint or do anything artsy or do anything else, um, like it's just one step at a time, whether you want to knit a scarf that's one stitch at a time. And, you know, you want to pursue um, like a, 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 another degree to to change what you do. It's one course at a time. You can get mm-hmm. there, but just don't look at the whole picture. Just look at what's right in front of you. Because if you, like one of the reasons that I've been late in getting the, the second book in the Your Life with RA series out is I think about the book and I go, that's 70,000 words that I have to write twice or three yeah. times. And it's completely intimidating, but I can do yes. one chapter at a time. So you, you just kind of got to flip it, flip it in your mind. Oh, totally, totally. I, I have to stop myself from looking at the grand total of the parts and just focus on, you know, one, one part at a time. Like I remember when I was making my rheumatoid arthritis roadmap online course, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to make sure I cover this and cover that, cover all the pain strategies and exercise, but also stress and mental health, but also social, but also logistical. And I had so much I wanted to say, but yeah, I, I find it's helpful to outline, like sketch out an outline. So I feel like I've gotten it all down and then just start again, that bird by bird after that. But if you're like a big picture person, it, it helps to have the big picture lined out sometimes. Um, that's one of like, I'm, I'm an outliner, it helps me. And I think also realizing that sometimes like if you're doing something creative, or even like if you're starting a business, it doesn't matter what it is, thinking counts as and planning count. Like for me, when I'm writing a book, it usually takes months of going around and basically I call it kicking the baseboards, but it's it's a lot of thinking and it's a lot of letting the back of your brain chew away at it while you do other things. And one day it'll say, okay, I'm ready. And that's when I outline because that works for me. Mm-hmm. Also because I have brain fog. So that way I don't forget anything. <laughs> oh, totally. I know. I wish I'd done a better job with these podcasts of keeping track of all the times in the, in the 20 episodes I've done so far all the times that the people I've been interviewing, we, we lose track of what we're talking about. We get brain fog temporarily because <laughs> yeah. it would make a great little, uh, little blooper reel, but yeah, yeah. no, the writing things down is a huge, uh, what in OT we would call it a compensatory strategy, you know, yes. for brain fog. Very yes. helpful. Now, just one, ga- one thing I would say, remember to look at whatever you wrote down. <laughs> oh, yes. I tend to forget that. <laughs> 
sometimes. Me too. I'm like, or where I put it? Where did I put that? Is it yeah. in a note in my phone? Is it in a post? Yeah, yeah. Is it in? Yeah. And then several years, several several weeks or months after, I'll find it and go like either go, what was I talking about? Yeah. Or or I'll go, you know, I'm kind of smarter than I thought I was. So write it down. <laughs> but yes, have one place like a one folder in on your computer or or one note on your phone or something like that totally oh that's so great um i want to switch gears a little bit and okay. talk about your <laughs> how do we condense someone's medical history <laughs> but i think people might be curious to know um since you've been living with rheumatoid arthritis slash juvenile arthritis for for so long you know what are some of the highlights and lowlights of, of your journey, you know, being a young person to now with, you know, with arthritis. And I know that you are such a fierce advocate now as well. So did, you know, were you always kind of like an advocate type personality or did you develop that skill over your many years of living with this? All right, I'm going to start with the, the a bit of the medical history. Yeah. Um, like I got the first symptoms of autoimmune arthritis when I was four and didn't get an actual diagnosis for five years. Uh, my parents did take me to multiple doctors. And at a, certain, at a certain point, my mother even, like she just started doing research and started suggesting that I had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, as it was then called, um, and was told that she was crazy and should see a psychiatrist. So uh, I think there was a bit, I know, I think there was a bit of vindication for her when, you know, we finally saw a rheumatologist who took one look at my hands and went, yep, here's the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in what I call the dark ages of rheumatology when there were no treatments um, and and vividly remember not just my own story, but also all the other kids I saw they, in, in Denmark at the time because there were no treatments. If you had juvenile arthritis, you basically went to this particular rehab hospital and kids would come from all over Denmark to go there to, uh, to see OTs or physical therapists and do, you know, pool exercises and stuff and then um, usually take prednisone mm -hmm. um, and then get weaned off prednisone. So I was there a lot. I had my first big systemic flare when I was 12 connected. Um, before that, before puberty, I just had um, RA in two joints mm -hmm. and then the hormones hit and my RA just went wild. So that was the first time it almost killed me. Oh my um, and then I came back from that. So I, I think one of the things that I can say about my journey is I really learned that RA and I would assume any other types of chronic illness it ebbs and flows sometimes are hideous and sometimes are not sometimes you get ahead of it and you have you know where it's it's just in the back burner and that to me that's the goal of getting getting your disease or your illness on on the back burner so you can focus on your on your life um I was in a hospital uh there's so much. I ended up with um, a body cast because they thought that immobilizing my hips and giving them a rest for a month would make them better and help me walk again. And that was oh the boy. last time I, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, that's what I mean, dark ages, right? Because wow. I got out of the body cast and my hips refused. We know oh now that immobilizing gosh. a joint for a four weeks is not a good idea. No, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So then I spent several years in a hospital bed waiting for hip, hip, hip replacements and got both hips replaced when I was 16 
got a power wheelchair and left the hospital as fast as I could go. And and I think this is like one of the messages that I try to share is that a lot of people see a mobility aid such as a wheelchair as giving up as, you know, there's the infamous um, terminology of being wheelchair bound or, yeah. you know, um, what's the other one? We, uh Oh, something, um, something to confined, confined. Yes, yes. And I can tell you firsthand is like my wheelchair liberates me without it, I'd be confined to bed. But because I have it, like I've traveled in this, I have, um, I've been there for my dad when he, he was dying, I have Mm -hmm. worked, I've gone to school, like this enables me to live. Um, and I think yeah. for people who are at that cusp of starting to need something, don't wait. Like save your energy because whether it's a cane or a wheelchair or a scooter or whatever, it will help you have less pain and have more energy so you can live your life. But um, Absolutely. So, so yeah, so basically I left the hospital at 16 and I tried to live a life as normally as possible, which meant going going to high school and graduating. And then I moved with my family to Canada Mm -hmm. and went to university, got a couple of degrees, started work. As a social worker? Sorry. Um, Technically, yes. I ended up, I started out wanting to be, you know, work one-on-one with people in counseling. and, And then I discovered policy development. And uh, that was another one of those click moments where it's like, oh, this is where I belong. So I actually worked Mm -hmm. in... um, a variety of equal opportunity mm-hmm. for about four years, but the laws changed. It's not that we don't have equal. We had in Ontario at the time an actual employment equity law, which meant that a lot of people with disabilities all of a sudden got jobs. Mm-hmm. And and then we had a new government elected and they repealed that law and we all lost our jobs. Mm-hmm. So then I had... Um, Long story short, sometime after that, I had my big flare and found biologics and and then said, okay, now's the time to become an author and start writing books. Wow. And that's that's incredible. I as an occupational therapist, I really appreciate all of your reflections, but particularly the one about how mobility aids can be liberating because it's definitely not the way most people grow up thinking about it. They grow up thinking, oh, it's sad, you know, Johnny's in a wheelchair or something, as opposed to, you know, look at what that enables the person to do. Like you said, you know, if if this technology of a power wheelchair wasn't available, you know, um, you would be, yeah, you would not have. No, I'd be stuck in a corner somewhere, right? Like this, this means because I can't move a manual wheelchair on my own. So I'd be stuck in the corner. But I think one of the things I have also learned throughout all of that, there's this unfortunate emphasis on maximizing independence and it it, it it happens a lot with like kids with disabilities you got to be as independent as possible and I think it eventually leads to adults who try to do it all themselves and try to do it all the quote-unquote normal way and I think looking yeah. back it wasn't until I got to graduate school where they basically insisted that I do it part-time which I found was highly offensive but then when I start doing it I'm like oh you mean so I actually have the energy now to do all the work yeah. and get better grades because I have the energy because I'm not wrecking myself constantly. And I think that was a really good lesson in, well, maybe I need to do it differently and take longer, but still get there. And then when I started working, because I worked in employment equity or equal opportunity, like it was built in. They knew that I needed what's called accommodations. 
mm-hmm. which is different ways to do the job. And for me, that meant uh, being at about 80% mm-hmm. of the job and with, you know, commensurate prorated salary and all of that. But it meant I could work. Had they insisted on it being full time, I wouldn't have lasted for a year. Yeah. So I learned a lot about what can help me. Mm-hmm. But also, I also learned through that job that it's actually a human right principle that accommodation, you have an actual right to be accommodated as long as you can do the job. But things like, for instance, depending on your job, like obviously I work in not a very physical job. It's pretty mental. But it Mm -hmm. meant that I don't actually need to be on site. I can work from home. And this is something Mm -hmm. that we really learn. Like people. People with disabilities have been asking for the ability to work remotely for years, decades, and always been, yeah. oh, no, we need you here. or We don't have the infrastructure. <sighs> yeah. And then the pandemic happens. And all of a sudden, look at all the infrastructure that happened and all the ability to work from home. Yeah. And, it's, and I think it speaks to the fact that when you create a truly inclusive society, like, for instance, if if you are making your society inclusive and accessible for people with disabilities, everybody else tends to benefit, whether that's Mm -hmm. an automatic door or the ability to work from home. There are studies that show that once people tried working from home, most actually go, yeah, I'd like to be able to do that at least part of the time, right? Oh, totally, totally. Um, yeah, I I mean, there's so much we could do the whole episode on, you know, inclusion and employment equity. So I do encourage everyone listening to check out Lena's work because she has a lot. You have some blog posts about it, too. And on Twitter, you do some great Twitter advocacy as well. But yeah, I've had the same thought like, wow, my how fast the the accommodations get given when able-bodied people need them, <laughs> you know, and when, yeah, suddenly yeah. it's okay. And I had this same actually I had um little little example from my own life I teach at a local community college here in the OT assistant program and I had to I had advocated um that you know I thought that their attendance policy was not inclusive because it was very like no no like when you have a job you get sick days right so even if I didn't ask for formal accommodations like most of my jobs I haven't had to ask for formal accommodations but I've used sick time to do things like infusions or you know take an extra day off if I've been getting over being sick but there was this policy was like no exceptions like for any reason and I was like you're not even setting this up for people to um anyway for people people to get used to the working world because at least in the working world you do have sick time but yeah this whole idea that students have to be physically there in order to learn you know doesn't necessarily make sense but anyway and and, and not only and not only that what with my background human rights that is discrimination and or it is yeah. a discriminatory policy um and com- other than completely boneheaded and unrealistic but but yeah, like you're absolutely right. And now, and I, and one of the things I do hope that happens is that I think the pandemic will last long enough that a lot of companies and schools and conferences, et cetera, will actually start building in the virtual factor and the ability mm-hmm. to get the job done without actually having the FaceTime. I read this really great book actually called Overwhelm, Overwhelming. And I forget, I, yeah, I wish I, I thought of this I, I'll send you the link after so you can include it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's a woman who writes about how work culture actually 
it's very feminist, which I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it talks just about how work culture, but just it basically sets women up for complete failure. Um, mm-hmm. And she talks a lot about that requirement for FaceTime that you have to be there and about innovative companies who have for a long time said, no, you don't need to be here. And actually, you may be more productive if you're at home. Yeah. Yeah. Or this whole idea of like, out, you know, you're paid by the hour, like one, um, you know, one of my friends brought up one, she's like, you know, if I could tell you, I can get the same do- job done in one hour that someone else can do in three hours. Like, wouldn't you want it to be done faster? Like paying people by the hour versus paying them by their ability to complete a project kind of you know, it makes a little more sense to pay by the project, depending, I guess, on the structure of the company. Well, but- yeah. And I think that's what lies behind work accommodation in the first place is it is not about how you do the job. It's about your ability to do the job. And if that takes you working from home, for those of us who are who are privileged enough to, to be able to do that, which mm-hmm. is, yes, absolutely a privilege. Mm-hmm. Um why do I need to invest in business clothes and transit or parking and and come in? And then you look at a lot of people who have like an hour or more commute to work, like you're already exhausted. Mm-hmm. I can do this. And if you have the ability to do it from home, then you can do you can be so much more effective. Oh, totally. So so I do have hope that the way we work and go to school and do a lot of things will change because I know there are companies like I think it's Shopify that basically went, okay, we're gonna go full remote. Yeah. And yeah. and and just said, can you imagine the, the savings too that a company could do if well, they didn't have yeah. office space? Oh, totally. Or had, or had like half of the office space. Yeah. So there's benefits. And I think employers are actually seeing now it's like, well, you know, this might actually work for us in not only in employee morale and productivity, but also just in overall savings. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, I did want to make sure I, I asked my f- my favorite question um, to wrap things up sometimes is, do you, what's your advice for newly diagnosed patients? Um, my advice, well, I often think that I... I wish rheumatologists would would approach their care as part of a team, a multi-professional team. Hallelujah. Yeah, I know. I know we're we're in the same page on this because I think giving someone a diagnosis of a chronic illness, a prescription, and an an appointment, you know, three months down the line and leaving them to figure it out themselves. I think it leads to a lot of wasted grief and dead ends. And like, this is part of why I do what I do is to use my experience to say, no, you can get there faster and you can live well and avoid these things, right? So mm-hmm. I think that if a rheumatologist with with the next appointment and a prescription would give you a referral to physical therapy, to occupational therapy, mm-hmm. and simply just to mental health therapy, mm-hmm. and perhaps a social worker to help you access resources, then I think a lot of people would navigate that early time much better. Ba- much faster Mm -hmm. and get the support necessary to live better and find out what are their rights? What can they do? What are the supports? How can they, you know, get the exercise in a way that doesn't hurt that will support their health? How can they adapt emotionally to having a different life? How can they, what are some doodads? And this is you know, yeah. your wheelhouse, doodads and tips on saving energy and doing things differently at home, mm-hmm. etc. And I think so if your doctor doesn't give you this, ask for it. 
physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, mental health support uh, with counseling, just to help you with that early stage of grief, because there will be grief (laughs) Mm -hmm. and sadness and, and figure out a way to accept and adapt and embrace your new life. And and that's, I think, is my one piece of advice. Other than, it turns out I'm more, uh, trust <laughs> yourself. Yeah. Uh, see yourself as, when, you, when you're generally healthy and you see your doctor twice a year for, you know, strep throat or mm-hmm. a sprained ankle, you do what they tell you. But when you have a chronic illness, you have to shift. You are the person who makes the decisions. Your doctor is very similar to your plumber. They will give you advice. But it's your job to find out if that's the best advice for you and to make the decision. And I think a lot of people go in and see the doctor and just do, well, I'm just going to do what they tell me. No, don't. Make sure it works for you. Yeah, that that skill in, in OT lingo, it might also in social work be called self-management. You mm-hmm. know, you are the one on a daily basis that is making hundreds of decisions every day yeah. that affect your health. And yeah, you cannot with one 20 minute appointment every three months get no. all of the guidance you need, you know, even if you could, it's Mm. better, like you said, to, to take it into your own hands and be, yeah, be your own best advocate. So I I think if I may add one last thing, yes, finding the, finding the right doctor is a lot like dating. Always remember that I know things are a little different in the U S and there may be insurance glitches, but with it is your right to fire your doctor. It is your right to find a doctor that you click with. Mm-hmm. It's your right to interview a doctor. Mm-hmm. And then just keep going until you find somebody who will be on your team and who has the same idea of what your life should look like as you do. And make sure that you keep talking about what your goals are. Don't make them set. Don't make your doctor set your goals. Mm-hmm. You're the one who set the goals. Right. And I could keep talking, but you know. <laughs> oh, I love shame, it. <laughs> shameless plug. Read my books and you'll find out more. No, totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, both of us, I think, have responded to this lack of resources for newly diagnosed patients and just patients in general by like, we're going to, if the system isn't going to change, we're going to make our own solutions you know, a book and a course. But yeah, I do. I share the same vision as you do long-term, a multidisciplinary approach mm-hmm. makes so much sense. And it's done for many other conditions. It just doesn't seem to be the standard of care for rheumatology. Now I did, I've talked to a couple of rheumatologists about it. And I think what's the complicating factor for some of them is that, well, these newer biologics have such a better prognosis for patients. So so maybe we can just avoid having to, quote unquote, having to go to physical therapy and OT and mental health support. But I'm like, yeah, but they're not, they're good, but they're not like a hundred percent for everyone, right? Well, well, A, we don't have the, we don't have the tools yet to determine which biologic exactly. will be the magic wand. Mm-hmm. And besides that, you still have a chronic illness. And oh, you have a yeah. chronic in, unpredictable illness that even if you're in remission, like and, and biologists can take a, up to three months to really kick in. So what are you going to do in the meantime? Like living with a, having a chronic illness is, it's not like you just hit someone with a magic wand and say, and now you are just normal. No, you're not. Like oh, there's always totally. something. So everybody can benefit from this. And it may be something where they go, you know, I don't need an OT right now, but at least now I know where one is and exactly. how to get there. And if I need it in the future, I can go back. Oh, totally. Because think life is changing all the time. I mean, like mm-hmm. when I had my son, I had a ton of different activities I was suddenly doing, you know, manipulating those small little buttons and fasteners. Mm-hmm. And I could, you know, I used my own OT lens, but it would have been so great to have my own actual, you know, OT 
I just didn't have the presence of mind to request it at the time. <laughs> you were a little busy with a newborn. A little right? busy, a little sleep but, deprived. Yeah. 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 So I think that just knowing that the tools exist and the, the guidance exists out there, but you, you have to know to ask for it. And instead, people just struggle in their lives and, and don't know that it's like, listen, you don't have to do it alone. Oh. There's help, whether it's in the wonderful RA community online, or it's, you know, the Arthritis Foundation, the Arthritis Society in Canada, or it's mm-hmm. simply like, get yourself an OT, get your physical therapist who can help you move better and get yourself a therapist and work through what it's like to have a chronic illness. Totally. I That's the one thing I would have done earlier is even I would do mental health support. Yeah. You know, um, I waited until after my son was born and it really would have been better to do it before, but better late than never. But oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And speak- it's, it's never too late. Even if you are an RA veteran, you can still go oh. to your doctor and ask for it now. Absolutely. And so if people want to learn more about, you know, what, what you're up to and find your books, where can they find you? I'm going to put it in the show notes, but some people Thank like you. to hear it. <laughs> uh, my website is thecededview.com and it has links to books and all my social media um, everywhere mm-hmm. <laughs> um, where I am I try to be there as often as possible and really the seatedview.com you go there you'll find find out everything yeah and you even have your own talk show Facebook talk show which I was I on do. the other day chronic journeys which I love it's uh yeah it, it's something I, I started going you know what I want to talk to people because hearing people's story just like this podcast hearing what what people are doing and having that dialogue I think is so important and it gives it's an opportunity also to shine a light on some initiatives that may not be getting a lot of attention because we are very niche market right so Absolutely. so it's a way to tell people about what else is out there. So yeah, I try to do that about, well, after I got sick, everything just Mm -hmm. went to a certain place in the handbasket. But I'm I'm hoping to start off again in um in January on a weekly basis. And you can learn more about that both on my website and on my Facebook. Great. Thank you so, so much. I know your time is very precious. So I really appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners today. Thank you so much for having me. And I think we could probably keep talking for another couple of hours, but life intervenes. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. 
I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.